The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast, and I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Coming up this week, the Eurozone prepares for another costly bailout as the financial crisis deepens in Portugal. Meanwhile, in Ireland, the government is still shoveling money into its wrecked banking system. All in all, an odd moment for the ECB to consider raising interest rates. Could Europe be on the verge of another Lehman Brothers moment? Also this week, is the dollar due for a big slide in value? Eminent economist Barry Eichengreen thinks the chances of that happening are surprisingly high. I do think history tells us that financial crashes and and crises uh, occur around the time of elections. Foreign investors understand that 2012 being a presidential uh, election year, there won't be any serious discussion about what to do, but they'll be waiting quite impatiently to see real evidence that uh, the American political system and, and public are are prepared to grapple with the problem uh, starting in 2013, so two years. But first, a welcome to my guests. Here in the studio, we've got fresh off a plane from Lisbon, Portuguese journalist Joana Gurjao Enriquez. Joining us on the line from Dublin, newly elected independent member of the dial for Wicklow, Stephen Donnelly, and The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. Now, will they or won't they? For months now, Portuguese government ministers have been denying talk that they will have to cave in and ask the IMF or Brussels for an emergency bailout. But that was before the Prime Minister resigned and the state had to pay 10% interest on its loans. From Madrid, the Guardian's Giles Tremlett has been following the story. Well, the political crisis and the economic crisis in Lisbon are inseparable the government of uh, Jose Socrates, the uh, socialist prime minister, was basically brought down because parliament refused to pass a, a fourth package of austerity measures. And that basically means that we have to have uh, fresh elections in the summer and we'll probably get a centre-right government, though possibly not one with an absolute majority and one that may indeed have to lean on the socialists for support. I think at the moment there's a certain amount of uh, political gamesmanship, shall we say, uh, to try and not be the, um, the Portuguese politician who accepts or has to ask for a bailout. The interest that uh, Portugal has to pay on its, uh, on its debt, uh, that has now soared to over 10%. Uh, the consensus, even when I was in uh, Portugal a uh, month ago during the um, Irish crisis, was that 7% was already too much. Interestingly, at that stage, uh, Portuguese newspapers were were full of headlines of how much uh, an Irish bailout was going to cost Portuguese citizens. But now uh, I think they're the ones who are going to need the bailout. Giles Tremlett there from Madrid. Joanna, do you agree with that conclusion that a bailout seems seems to be accepted by the Portuguese as almost inevitable? I think it's the overall view in the country. The prime minister is said to be the some some say that he's the only one who is trying to to resist it fiercely. My sense is that he's becoming more and more isolated because now there's a call for both the government and the opposition parties to set an agreement for the international aid. And 
it's becoming more and more evident. Socrates uh, resigned uh, just a couple of weeks ago. How much of a surprise was that? It was not a big surprise because it was he uh, designed an um, austerity plan by, by himself. He's in the, uh, the government, he's a minority government. Mm, a minority and, socialist yes. government, yeah. And he didn't call the opposition leader and didn't call the, the president. And suddenly he showed a month in advance the fourth austerity plan. And he was fiercely criticized and the opposition leader said that he wouldn't pass the, the plan. And therefore Socrates said, I will resign if the, if the plan, the austerity plan would be rejected, which, which happened. So to sum up, you've got a prime minister who's announced he's resigning. You've got a government that's having to pay 10% plus on its loans from financial markets. Um, and you've got a growing sense that it may have to go to either the Eurozone or to the IMF for a bailout. How's all this going down with the ordinary Portuguese voter? A year ago, the financial crisis was something abstract. And now people are feeling it in everyday lives and their work because uh, of the uh, they they have to work more with less means harder and there's this feeling of a pressure all the time on the other hand i think that something of a of a of a politics of, of fear is playing out in workplace so people are very scary about losing their jobs of course and mostly about what's coming next. Because the, the feeling is that if IMF comes to Portugal, the, the situation will be much worse than this, you know, the... Self-imposed domestic austerity. Yes. Yeah. Um, Larry Elliott, uh, Charles has said that a bailout for Portugal is now inevitable. Joanna said that a bailout for Portugal is almost inevitable. What's your betting? And... and how on earth do you have a bailout of a sovereign state if you don't have a functioning government? Well, I think they'll probably have to wait until they do get a functioning government, but I think the bailout is inevitable. I think you can't envisage a situation where they're borrowing at 10% lasting for very much longer. It's, that's obviously unsustainable and putting enormous pressure on the economy. And if you look at countries that have been bailed out, they're now borrowing at 5%. So th there's, there's an attraction there for, for a bailout, which is that you can start to borrow from the ECB or from the IMF at half the interest, at half the interest rate. So I think the, the economic logic of it is that you, you either go for a bailout or you go for something a lot more drastic, such as outright default or that those those are really the only options you either go for a bailout or do some or go for the big bang solution, which is default and devaluation but that's obviously not something Portugal is currently contemplating I wouldn't have thought and you can't really do that within the eurozone well, no, you'd, have to leave, you'd have to leave the eurozone which I don't think is on the on the table for any of the, at the moment for any of the eurozone countries although it may be at some point obviously but it's not at the moment Stephen Donnelly from from Wicklow um at least in Ireland the government agreed the terms of a rescue package before being booted out um what what do you make of the developments in Portugal so I, I would have a few comments based on based on what Larry and jo Joanna said. The first is the cost of the bailout. Ireland is paying 5.83% for its money. And if Portugal is paying 10%, well, then obviously there is potentially uh, a few percentage points to be saved. But I would issue a word of caution, which is 
that the six percent comes with pretty horrendous uh, uh, conditions attached to it. The situation Ireland has Ireland has has, has found itself in is that we are paying well in excess of 100 billion euros of private losses. Uh, that works out to over 80,000 euros per household. I calculate it would be the equivalent of asking the French to pay back private losses of about 1.3 trillion euros. I was talking to an MEP during the week who said if the French were asked to pay uh, 1.3 trillion of, of other people's losses, they would burn down the Champs-Élysées. So in fact, the 10% if it leaves you with the option of not covering private sector losses and it leaves you with the option of letting some of your banks fail, uh, which for reasons I cannot fathom the Europeans uh, are not allowing in Europe, the 10% actually in the long term may be far, far cheaper. Uh, the situation in Ireland, I, I think, is possibly a little different in that whilst we're, we're running a very considerable budget deficit, the deficit is 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 well within manageable uh, a manageable range and is and is and is coming down quite quickly what has bankrupt ireland is the decision by the 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 previous government to essentially guarantee the entire banking sector using the irish people as collateral which to the best of my knowledge has has never been done anywhere in the world in history um, and I, I i hope will never be done again so i i would urge a lot of a, a, a lot of caution um, and say that it's not just 6% versus 10%. It's it's 6% plus some pretty horrendous and, in my view, morally abhorrent conditionality. So they should they should think very carefully. I can certainly, Joanna was talking about the the feeling of fear uh, in the workplaces and, and and in the communities. Certainly, I can I can relate to that. We, as you know, had our own election just a few weeks ago. And there was there was fear and there was desperation and there was resignation. You know, you, you would talk to people on their doorsteps and they would say, you know, my husband and I run out of money in three weeks. Now, for self-employed people in Ireland, you don't get social welfare if, if you lose your job. You get absolutely nothing. And they were saying, you know, we're running out of, we are going to run out of money in, in three weeks. We are not going to be able to pay our mortgage. We can no longer afford petrol for our car. And we're now beginning to think about what charity will provide food for our children. So I can I, I can empathise with that culture of fear and desperation. Stephen and Joanna, um, one question to the both of you. Is there a sense that this crisis has been created by your own governments, by Brussels, by Germany, Angela Merkel, or by Washington? Stephen, you go first. For me, it certainly had nothing to do with Washington. For me, there were a few factors um, there was a blanket guarantee given in September 2008 by our government uh, covering all of the liabilities of the Irish banking sector. How much Europe was involved in that is still unclear. Nobody will say. The previous Minister for Finance did say that a decision was taken in Europe that no European bank would fail. Uh, we had a situation where we had one bank in particular, which has absorbed a huge amount, or, or which, which constitutes a huge amount of the losses, called Anglo-Irish Bank, which was of pretty much zero systemic importance. It lent mainly to property developers, paid a, paid a very high interest rate on its bonds because they were inherently risky because it was exposed to the Irish, to the Irish sector. The Irish government issuing the blanket guarantee, I, I mean, it should never have done it if it hadn't done it and had it wrapped the, the protection of, of a sovereign guarantee around, say, two of the other banks, Bank of Ireland and, 
and AIB, uh, we'd be fine. There would the, 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 the IMF would not be he- would not be here right now. Certainly, the situation at the moment. Our, our own central uh, uh, governor of the central bank, Professor Patrick Honan stated on television last week in Ireland that essentially the ECB has threatened us in no uncertain terms, has threatened Ireland and said, look, for example, of this 35 billion euros you have left in unguaranteed senior bonds, um, if you don't pay it back, we will inflict far more pain on you than the 37 billion. It will be very, very bad for your, for, for your country. So how much at the start was the the false or insistence of our government versus the ECB is unclear. Certainly now, it would appear that the ECB and the European leaders are acting in a very, very aggressive manner and essentially saying, look, the Irish people are going to pay back these vast debts, which A, they had nothing to do with, and B, an awful lot of which I believe reside in European banks and European European funds. Joanna, give us a view from Portugal. Um, I think it's always difficult to speak for a country but uh, anyway, my my feeling is that people Portuguese um, had the the sense for I mean I would say for the first time that the, they really belong to the eurozone and to the European Union, and who leads the country is not only uh, our prime minister. On the other hand, I mean that said, there is can be some sense of of uh, seeing Socrates as powerless. But on the other hand, I think there's a lot of criticism on his ineptitude to, to, to manage the, the, the economic crisis. So, I mean... <laughs> Larry, give us your verdict. Who, who do you think is calling the shots in these bailouts or these peripheral, peripheral countries' crises? Well, I think Germany is obviously calling the shots inside the Eurozone, and I think Stephen's absolutely right that the reason that they're taking such a tough line with Ireland is that an awful lot of German lending went on, on during the bubble period. If, if Someone, when I was in Germany a few weeks ago, said that actually investment in Germany... Um, was very weak during the bubble years, and mainly because Germans were putting all their money into countries like Greece and Ireland and Portugal, um, and they lent some uh, money quite unwisely, and now that money is at stake. So uh, I think that they are taking a very tough line with countries like Ireland and Portugal, and to an extent taking advantage of the fact that both those countries are, are seen as, quotes good Europeans, unquote, and won't rock the boat too much. They'll uh, take their punishment. They'll take their punishment and won't actually hit back. And I think that they, they're taking... I think that the European policymakers are taking quite a risk there because there's a limit, I think, to even to, to, the, to the amount of punishment that countries will take and you know, the, worm, the worm will turn at some point. And I think they're probably reaching that point, certainly with Ireland, and could well be reach that point fairly soon with Portugal, that there's a limit to the amount of austerity that you can inflict on people. And I think that in terms of you know, the long-term health of the Irish economy, the Portuguese economy, they do need some way of, of actually uh, some assistance, be it through... Um, a default or lower interest rates or some some sort of help has to be provided for them. They just cannot be told to take more and more punishment. On the other hand, I want to add that there's been strikes almost every week in Portugal and there was this massive rally uh, on, in middle March called by uh, Facebook, um, a group of young people. On Facebook? On Facebook and no links with uh, with uh, any political, political party, party. Yeah. and it was massive it was like 300,000 people on the streets and what started as a, a, a youth movement became a, a national movement so i mean people are very 
angry and scary with these austerity measures because they are feeling it every day. And this idea of the welfare state, the cuts on the welfare state and all the things that we, we've mentioned before is making people protest. There's also at a at a European level, the, the austerity measures are, are being felt very, very hard here. And and as always seems to be the case, the austerity measures are being felt by the most vulnerable people in society the most. But if we if we step back from an individual country, I would be ex- I am extremely concerned about the precedence that this has set in Europe, because in Europe, what this has said is it is okay for the public for 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 for, for private citizens to be forced to pay back the losses of powerful institutions like banks and, and, and investment funds. And essentially, if you follow through, what it says is, look, if you don't, ultimately, we'll put you in jail, right? We extract this money from you through your taxes. If you don't pay your taxes, um, you go to jail. So this, to me, has set a, a, set a precedent which fundamentally undermines the market-based system. Which has, which has worked very well. In America, between 2008 and 2010, the figures from the US government are that 322 banks failed, right? Um, banks over there, I know there was the, the Lehman's was a slightly different issue, but banks over there are seen as businesses that buy and sell money, which is essentially all they are. And your own uh, uh, governor of the central bank, Bank of England, Mervyn King, about four weeks ago to the uh, Treasury Committee was very, very clear that, that you need a failure regime and that you know, no bank is too big to fail. And the job of the regulator, the job of the government is, is not to protect management from its own mistakes. It's to allow failure to happen in an orderly way, which, um, which doesn't allow con- uh, 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 contagion. But this, this thing that has been forced on the Irish people and may, may indeed be forced on the Portuguese, may be forced on the Greece, uh, on the Greece, it says the European citizens you are going to pay, we are, going to, we are going to take money from you for decades to pay the completely separate private losses of market investors is a deeply, deeply worrying precedent to, to, to have set in Europe, I believe. Well, what would you do though, Stephen? I mean, what would you do now with those, with those banks? Would you say that the, that the senior debt holders need to take a haircut or would you actually remove the blanket guarantee from those banks? I mean, that decision was taken... Two and a half years ago, you said probably you know, an unwise decision. It certainly looks an unwise decision. But where would you go from here? So there's there's about 35 billion euros left in unguaranteed senior debt, senior bondholders. And again, Ireland being so small, if you if you were to scale that up for the UK, I mean, let's let's even just multiply it by about 15, right? That 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 gives you that gives you you know over half a trillion euros of private debt. It's a vast amount of money. I think what you do is you immediately say, we're not, we're not paying any of that back. It's not our debt. And it's not, uh, very importantly, it's not even a clause in the EU IMF deal. Uh, it is something, it is a separate conversation that the Europeans are having with the Irish government and saying, if you don't do it, like we'll crucify you for the reasons you've already laid out, because they will be scared that other European bonds will be written down because a precedence will have been set that says, senior bonds are not sacred. They're simply senior bonds. They, they would say, if you want the safety of, sovereign, of a sovereign guarantee, then buy sovereign debt. But of course, they don't buy sovereign debt because sovereign debt doesn't give them as much profit as corporate debt, right? Um, so, so, so yeah, you, but you, you, you say very simply, you're not getting your money back. 
it's not our debt, it's your debt. You invested in these banks. These banks have failed. They're completely insolvent. You can't have your money. There are some interesting things you can do around debt for equity swaps and other things to, to, to make it more of a burden share rather than just a complete, sorry, you know, we're, we're, we're not paying it back. But that's essentially what you do. You just say, no, this is, this is insane. You've, they've already, as of September last year, they'd already been paid back over 70 billion euros and there's 35 billion left, and there may be some between now and September. I, 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 I'm currently looking for that for that figure, but that's what you do, I think. Yeah, I think there's only three ways out of, of, the, of this crisis. We all begin with D, aren't they? One is devaluation, which is obviously ruled out, yeah. uh, and, and one is default, which I think we're getting closer to, and the other one is depression. I mean, that's the, that's the cho- choice. You either depress your economy, for, you know, for year after year after year, you devalue your currency and make yourself more competitive, or, or, or you or you somehow default on some of your some of your debt. And I think default is obviously of the, of the three looks to me that the most like the, 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 the most obvious of the three I, and i think there's two pieces to the default so there's there's i don't believe de- the word default applies to banking debt because it suggests that actually you have some obligation to pay this debt no more than if i said to you larry actually you know what um I put a thousand euros on a horse the other day at Cheltenham and didn't win. Um, you've never met me before, but I, I want you to pay me a thousand euros. Not only do I want you to pay me a thousand euros, I want you to pay me the money I would have won had my horse come in, right? Because we're not just paying the capital back in these bonds, we're paying the interest rates. So we're paying. So, so that's, you know, if I rang you and said, I want the thousand and I want another 500 because my, you know, my, my horse was at four to one or whatever. Um, you would tell me, you know, you would tell me where to go. It's certainly, if you didn't, if you chose not to pay me that money, I don't think anyone would say that you were defaulting on your debt to me. Joanne. I think I, uh, I, I, but the sovereign debt, it is becoming more and more clear that Ireland is looking at a restructuring of its, of its sovereign plus banking debt. The feeling in Ireland is that the Europeans are waiting until 2013 where there's a new, you know, the new rules are going to come in and then there can be this multilateral uh, restructure. Uh, are you suggesting uh, that um, um, Ireland should do something similar um, to Iceland? Yeah, well, yes, yes, absolutely. And actually, I'm part of a technical group of independent MPs uh, here in, 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 in Parliament. And we've tabled a motion that will be voted on tonight calling for a referendum. And importantly, we're not calling for a referendum to say, no, we're not paying it back. At least that's not why I'm doing it. I'm calling on a referendum to say, look, um, there are clear, there are tough choices to be made here. The Europeans have told us that they will inflict more damage on us, but at least let's choose that ourselves. The, the new government, be, during the election, as you can imagine, there was an awful lot of tough talk. The phrase here is burning the bondholders. And not surprisingly, within three weeks, they've come out and said, Actually, it turns out that we're going to pay most of this back. So we are calling on a... I don't think we're going to get it. Of course, the government is going to vote against it. But I, I firmly believe that when the amount of money is this big, if, I, if, you, if we're going to turn around to, the, to every household in Ireland and say, you're taking on €27,000 at 6%, um, I think they should choose. I think the people really should choose. They thought they were choosing through the election, um, but it turns out they weren't. Larry, final question to you. And while all this is going on in Lisbon and Dublin, uh, in Frankfurt, the ECB is preparing to raise interest rates. Yeah, it looks like a bolt on certainty that they're going to raise interest rates uh, this week. Um, I think that's a very, very big problem for the struggling countries on the on the periphery of the eurozone and i think it's a big mistake for the eurozone generally i don't think because it's been bit, suggested it won't be just the one time that we I, might well I, I think it will be the start of a, of a quite progressive series of tightenings over the over the course of this year I, I it's not it's not a one-off 
um, and we will see interest rates considerably higher by the end of the year inside the eurozone which is you know if you're Ireland or Portugal or even Spain uh, it's the last thing you want in the current circumstances I think they're making it a serious policy error at the, at the ECB because it raises the interest rates that, say the, Germany would pay on its government it, it raises loans. the interest rates for everybody and it will slow down the economy and it's it, it's it's not Inflation is is no more of a problem for the eurozone fundamentally than it is in the UK. It's all caused by mainly caused by external factors, and I think that they are the ECB is making a, a, a really fundamental policy error here, and it will have consequences, pretty big consequences for for the struggling countries. Well, let's leave that there for now. You can read more about this at guardian.co.uk/business. This is the business with Aditya Chakraborty. Well, from the troubled eurozone to the troubled dollar. Barry Eichengreen is economics professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And he sees that the dollar's days as being the number one currency in the world are soon to be over. He came into The Guardian on a recent visit to London and I asked him to explain his pessimistic mood. Well, we have moved already to a situation where the US, having been the dominant economic and financial power uh, after World War II, is now only 20% or so of the world economy. And yet we have inherited this legacy where the dollar is still um, two-thirds of global foreign exchange reserves. The dollar is still involved in fully 85% of all foreign exchange transactions worldwide. There should be, therefore, a sense in which the dollar will not be as dominant uh, in the future as in the past. One way of understanding the financial crisis that we've just been through is that there is this imbalance or tension between what is now a more multipolar economic world and still a dollar-dominated monetary and financial system that foreigners have been willing to lend to us more freely than they would otherwise in order to accumulate our, our dollars. Those low interest rates and the freedom with which other people lent to us was part of what fed the subprime boom and, and contributed to the housing bubble. I think, therefore, that 10 years from now, when we uh, not only have a more multipolar economy, but a more multipolar uh, international monetary and financial system, where several currencies are, are used in international transactions globally, and not only dollars, that will probably be a safer financial place because we'll, we'll have a better balance between the structure of the real economy and the structure of its monetary and financial system. So what other currencies, what other economic blocks are you thinking of? So when people ask me that, uh, I first observe that the, the, the biggest thing working in, in the dollar's favor is that the potential rivals all have problems of, of their own. But I do think the, um, the rivals with, with staying power are the euro and China's renminbi. Uh, Ten years from now, uh, I think there will be three, those three currencies, the renminbi, the euro, and the dollar, sharing the international stage. Why those three and not, say, the Japanese yen? Well, because you need a, a, a big platform uh, in order for your, your uh, currency to be attractive for international use. You have to do a lot of foreign trade. You have to have deep and liquid financial markets at home. And you have to have some economic dynamism. You have to have a growing economy. Um, uh, uh, Japan, for uh, all its current problems, which we we hope are uh, transitory, has a deep-seated demographic problem. 
that its labor force is going to be declining, that it's not an uh, immigrant-friendly uh, economy. I don't, uh, the importance of, of the yen peaked actually in 1988 uh, when it was 8% of central bank foreign exchange reserves, and it's been in decline ever since. And if you're talking about dynamism and need to uh, be a major international player, then how on earth do you throw the euro into that, which seems to be increasingly sclerotic and unwilling to punch its weight on the international stage? Well, the euro w- was making some some progress on the international stage before the current round of difficulties. Um, I remain convinced, you might say, in the face of considerable evidence to the contrary, that European leaders will get their act together, that when their backs uh, are against the wall, they will do the right things to make the euro survive, because quite simply, there is no alternative uh, to that. So what do they have to do? They have to uh, fix the current uh, problems in in Europe's banking systems, and I believe they, they are uh, eventually going to get around to doing that. They need to lighten the debt load on the very heavily in, in indebted countries like Greece and Ireland. And they need to finalize the structure of the emergency financing mechanism that will relieve the European Central Bank of the need to step in whenever and wherever there are uh, financial problems in the, in the future. They need to do only three things. And, and, and I think they, uh, they eventually will. Some historical processes uh, are irreversible. Uh, they become facts on the ground. I sincerely believe the euro has gotten to that point. The way you talked about it so far, it sounds like quite a smooth process that over the course of 10 years, as America slowly becomes less of a the prominent play on the economic stage and others become more prominent that there's a gradual sharing out of responsibilities. But surely from your study of the Great Depression and the way that played out internationally, you can see a way in which it might actually be a lot choppier, that transition. Well, choppier wouldn't even be the word uh, I would use. One could well imagine a much darker scenario where there comes a tipping point and mass flight away from the dollar by uh, international investors. They become concerned about the prospects for the dollar. They don't want to be the left last ones holding the bag, so they Flee. The dollar crashes, U.S. uh, Treasury rates shoot up, uh, important investors get wrong-footed, and and very bad financial consequences follow. Under what circumstances could that arise? I I think, so in the book, I go through a number of alternatives, but the only one with legs that I'm really convinced by is where we in the United States bring this dollar crash, this confidence of this crisis of confidence in the dollar uh, upon ourselves. And we do that by failing to get our our fiscal house in order. It's pretty clear that if we don't and we continue running uh, multi-trillion dollar budget deficits as far as the eye can see, the Fed comes under pressure to use inflation as a way of financing them. Foreigners can see that coming, and there could come a point where they all uh, scramble out. So I can I can see the question you're about to ask, which is when, and uh, the honest answer would be, economic science is not sufficiently uh, well developed to say exactly when. Okay, um, what probability but, then? But uh, I, I do think history tells us that financial crashes and, and crises uh, occur around the time of elections. So there is a scenario where foreign investors understand 
that 2012 being a presidential uh, election year, there won't be any serious discussion about what to do, but they'll be waiting quite impatiently to see real evidence that uh, the American political system and, and public are, are prepared to grapple with the problem uh, starting in 2013. So two years. And what probability do you give to uh, a big dollar crash? Well, um, um, less than than 50-50. I continue to believe that. 40? The, so I wouldn't, wouldn't rule out a, a, a number that high. I continue to have confidence on balance that um, the American political system is capable of dealing with challenges. In a mature, uh, in a mature fashion. But like you're still this, saying that there's a 40% chance of a dollar crash within two years. So you haven't made me de- uh, define the magnitude uh, of a dollar crash. But yes, I think there could be a uh, 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 significant fall in, in the dollar over the medium term. I wouldn't rule that out. And what would significant mean? So a benign fall in, in, in the dollar could be as much as um, uh, another 15 or 20 percent above the 10 percent that we've seen in the last year or so. Anything beyond that, I think, would start to cause uh, problems for international investors, problems for our, our trading partners, and other un- unforeseen consequences. Let me just pick you up on that. In Britain, we've had roughly a 25% fall in the value of sterling against our major trading partners. And that's all happened within the course of about two years or so. And that's been fine because actually it's been a bit of a boost for exporters and no one's raised really raised an eyebrow because we're not a major reserve currency anymore. We're no longer the, the world's number one reserve currency anyway. Um, why? Just draw out for us why it's a particular problem for the world's number one reserve currency to have a 30%, 40% fall in its value. Well, num- number one, the U.S. is uh, a much more important trader. Number two, foreign holdings uh, of dollars are, are so vast. And one can argue about whether uh, the losses that the Chinese central bank, the People's Bank of China, would have to acknowledge if the dollar fell against uh, uh, its own currency and and, uh, other major currencies were actual economic losses or only bookkeeping uh, accounting losses. But uh, I I do think it would be a a political as well as an economic problem for foreign central banks, governments, private investors that are that are heavily uh, invested in in dollar denominated securities. What worries me about what you've just said is the stakes are patently so high and you're resting an awful lot of hope upon politics. Well, I think uh, uh, quite a few of your readers uh, and listeners would dismiss me as alarmist and in, engaged in a, uh, a blatant attempt to sell books by not ruling out the, uh, the one in three uh, possibility of a, of a dollar crash in the next few years. But it's precisely because of the um, dysfunctional politics that you described that I think there is reason to worry about the U.S. economy and, and to worry about um, the maintenance of confidence uh, in the dollar. Barry Eichengreen there, and his book, Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar, is published by the Oxford University Press. That's all for this week. Leave your comments on this week's programme on our blog. My thanks to Larry Elliott, Stephen Donnelly, Joanna Gurjao Enrique, and Barry Eichengreen. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Shakaporty. Thanks for listening. 
For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.